Hey, this is Abhi. And this is Faria. Welcome to the Manmukti Podcast, where we speak up about South Asian mental health. We're here to connect you with mental health professionals and those with lived experiences of mental illness. Ladies and gentlemen, hope you all are having a fantastic day. My name is Buddy Tanglamudi and I'm here with the Man Mukti Podcast. In this episode, our CEO Abhijit and I talked to Saranya Sundaram, a PhD candidate in clinical psychology over at Palo Alto University in California. She will be discussing the role of culture in psychiatry and psychology. Hope you all enjoy. Hi, Saranya. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Man Mukti Podcast. Uh, we really excited to talk to you a bit about your experience as a resident over in California and some of the work you're, you've been doing in regards to South Asian mental health. So um, if we could just get started with uh, you telling us a bit about yourself and how you got interested in mental health in the first place. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be a part of this. Um, so yeah, I am currently in uh, Palo Alto, California. I'm a PhD student in the clinical psychology program at Palo Alto University. So right now I am in my third year of clinical training. So this means I'm just doing uh, clinical practicum work outside in the community. And I will be at the Palo Alto VA next year um, uh, providing neuropsychological evaluations and cognitive rehabilitation to veterans with um, brain injury and brain-related disorders. Great. And how did you get interested in doing and working in mental health in the first place? So I did what every good Indian kid would do, and I started out pre-med. And my parents are actually doctors, so even more of kind of the prodding to be a doctor. And I really enjoyed taking um, biology and connecting it with psychology and kind of seeing how that, you know, was a unique perspective for a client. And how that's kind of just this whole different realm of something that most of us don't see or can think that we can see um, from a client's perspective. So um, I got to shadow a neuropsychologist, and I really liked that unique perspective, so I decided to pursue more of that. So I got my master's in rehabilitation counseling at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. So here I worked with... um, uh, different age ranges. I got exposed to uh, different clinical settings, different clinical disorders, um, therapy, and assessment. So it kind of gave me a good foundation of what I wanted to kind of explore in the future. And so after I graduated, I worked as a research coordinator at UTD Center for Brain Health. And here I got to really kind of see how this kind of comes back to my career goal. So My career goal is to become a board-certified clinical neuropsychologist and uh, provide uh, neuropsychological evaluations, which means um, assessing uh, an individual with any neurological disorders or neurodegenerative diseases and assessing their everyday functioning, um, overall functioning, cognitive functioning, and as well as providing cognitive rehabilitation. So, for example, somebody with Alzheimer's disease Um, you're going to see a lot of decline in memory. So um, being able to uh, provide a specific type of intervention, which is cognitive rehabilitation, and this helps them um, kind of preserve their quality of life and work with uh, their loved ones to kind of preserve that quality of life 
working through this condition that tends to be terminal. So after that, um, I found this school that helps me kind of um, specifically have an area of emphasis in neuropsychology. So I get to take courses and I also get to um, do clinical training specifically and research specific to neuropsychology and my interests. Great. Okay. And it's, I'm sure it's not bad being in Palo Alto either. No, not at all. <laughs> I do not miss the Texas heat. So in addition to, I guess, the uh, sort of academic interest you had in doing this, uh, was there something in your personal life or personal experiences you've had with mental health that also made you interested in pursuing this as a career? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, kind of growing up, you know, we see a lot of things maybe happening and we sometimes don't register it then. And I think that was something that happened to me as I noticed how, you know, sometimes friends would take information differently or they would respond to information differently. And I, I guess growing up, I didn't know exactly what that meant. And then knowing more about psychology and understanding more about, you know, the different types of disorders that there are, like depression and anxiety, or even not as a disorder, but just, you know, kind of those things that happen. Um, I got to witness, you know, a lot of family members or friends of family members just be discouraged from seeking mental health services due to this mental health stigma that's present in South Asian cultures and sometimes even be reprimanded for even suggesting they have any mental health issues. So I think this kind of spurred my passion um, and I think it helps me take that resistance that I've kind of witnessed and it allows me to be, allows me to be more culturally sensitive um, because sometimes individuals, they might present with similar challenges or resistance or even something different, but in a similar way. Um, and I feel like I am able to be very culturally um, in tune to what's going on in terms of resistance and those challenges to kind of help them aid them in their psychological process. I think you bring up two really interesting points there, right? One is how you how you made it you made it a point to say that um, you know depression anxiety you you kind of said disorders at first, but then said you know these are just things that happen sometimes. And I think that's an important for people to to notice is that not every um, instance of mental illness has to be um, a very severe one, and it could be you know things that could be helped sometimes with um, you know seeking help early or uh, finding out uh, that you're you know dealing with any sort of dip in mental health early. Another thing you said that mm-hmm. I want to point that I want that is something that's very much important to Manuki's mission is uh, stigma, right? And so I know you mentioned that you're going to be working in uh, working in doing psychiatric assessments, things like that, um, to help figure out whether people have neurological disorders or not. So one of the things that comes to mind is you know, how does if you're assessing a patient or you're talking to them and trying to figure out what their mental state is, there must be some role that stigma plays in that when it comes to them answering your questions. So what do you think that is, especially in the context of doing psychiatric assessments? How how does stigma play a role? Um, That's a really good point. Um, So if you're working with a client, something that I've noticed is uh, working with individuals from collectivist-type cultures, it's a very family interdependent type of a culture, Uh, family values are huge. So even sometimes suggesting that they want to pursue psychological help, sometimes they're met with resistance. And um, even when they come in and maybe they get the courage to come in or the family is, you know, kind of okay bringing them in, um, just the way they describe their symptoms, you know, sometimes it's, it's very, you know, kind of cursory 
and it's not as in much detail as you would like. Uh, so sometimes it takes a lot of empathy. It takes a lot of work to just kind of build that alliance with the client to make sure that they feel comfortable and that you're not just trying to get all this information and put it down on paper and give it back to them. It's that you're really trying to work with them and understand, hey, this person is going to say things to me in ways that I may not understand, but that you as a clinician can you know, continue to educate yourself and keep yourself informed, but letting them know that it's okay if they're not able to even express it because sometimes they might not even know what to say or what we're looking for. Um, and also it's what is it, how is it relevant to what they're coming in for? So are they wanting, you know, accommodations? Are they wanting help with something or do they just want to know what's going on? It just depends on what the referral kind of question is of why they're even coming in to do the evaluation. Um, and then just disclosing information. They might just give a little bit of information here but not feel comfortable giving the rest of the information. It might be, you know, they might feel like, hey, all this is going to be on paper. It's going to be, you know, known to everybody. So even if their families are okay with them, you know, disclosing this information, are they themselves okay with having this out there? Because that's where that stigma comes into play, saying, oh, this is going to be a paper trail. There's going to be something that shows that you're feeling this way and it's kind of aberrant. It's it's away from the normal type of what you should be feeling according to society. So how are we going to fix that? What are we going to do? Do you really want everybody to know that? Would it be fair to say that when coming in for evaluations, especially in, like you said, collectivist cultures or South Asian culture, it tends to essentially take longer for any sort of accurate assessment to occur or any sort of accurate diagnosis. Is that fair to say? It could, yeah. I mean, in, in this day and age, there's so many more millennials who are from, you know, South Asian heritage, but they may have been born and raised here. So they feel more comfortable kind of getting this help on their own or independently. So they may feel more comfortable coming in and you may get a really good, like, straightforward clinical interview but sometimes if you're coming in with a family or you're coming with other people that might influence like what you might have to say then it might take longer and sometimes it just depends on how they want to relate to you right so if, if I'm going to ask a client a question and they just don't feel comfortable but after a couple of minutes they see you know kind of you know how I'm working with them and I'm not working against them they may open up more and I think that's just dependent on personality as well so this is a, a unique perspective that we get for them to kind of show their true colors or show like what's going on internally within them and get their story. Some people are more willing to say it than others, but if you're met with a lot of resistance from somebody in a South Asian culture, it could take a little longer. And along those lines, what do you think is the role of South Asian people coming into uh, an, an office like yours and seeing you, who's also South Asian, what do you, what, how do you think that helps them reduce stigma or does it increase stigma? What, what is the role that you play as a South Asian and kind of the way that uh, stigma affects these assessments? That is a great question. I think I deal with that every day. Um, and that's something I feel like I'm going to continue dealing with um, as I go through it. So that's a lot of counter-transference on my end. Um, working with somebody that is from a similar culture, it's important for me not to think that I know everything about my own culture because it's culture is one thing, but it's how somebody has internalized it and how they express it that makes it unique to them. So just because it's typical for South Asian cultures to do this, I could get somebody from a South Asian culture and they don't express that behavior that way or they don't feel like that value is that important to them. So I think it's making sure that I'm aware and I have 
insight about what this culture might present with, but also letting the client tell their own story and how that fits in. And I think, you know, even it's important for me to see if they're comfortable in working with me because what if they're just not comfortable with working with another South Asian mental health professional? It could for them increase that stigma or resistance and makes them think that this is something related to the stigma rather than against it and becomes counterintuitive. I think that's why, like I can only stress so much that is it's important to do it in the client's terms and in the client's way um, and making sure that they're comfortable with it. And if they're not comfortable you can always refer them out. You can always, you know, kind of sit there and talk to them and, and kind of gain their perspective to see what they're comfortable with. But letting them make that decision, I think, is a huge important part of that. Okay. So I think, you know, we've talked a bit now about how uh, how important stigma can be and how, how you handle those kind of situations uh, when, you're, when you're doing assessments. But I guess it would be useful for people to know sort of what is the current state of uh, dealing with, you know, culture and assessments, right? Um, so I'll, I'll let Buddy kind of take over and ask some questions about uh, where things are today in, in the general sense. Very good. So so what is the current state of cultural competency in, in those kind of psychiatric assessments and whatnot? Um, so it actually, it, it's it's in a state where it's it's just a work in progress is the best way I can say it because you know, we've had, a, you know, immigration is rising. We have a lot more immigrants coming into the country, a lot more, you know, finding jobs. And, you know, regardless if it's South Asian or another culture, it's important to understand how, you know, it affects different cultures. Um, so with the current state of assessments, you know, typically you are taking, you know, you give a client a test um, and it assesses some sort of cognitive function, whether that's processing speed, working memory, executive function, something like that. And you take that data and you compare it to the normative data. So normative data is a reference population. So it gives you like a baseline of what you would expect for that person to score based on their age, based on their education. And it's how we compare that individual score to the population so we can determine hey, is this something that's not within, you know, a normal type of functioning? Is there something going on? Or maybe they just weren't paying attention to this test and it just kind of, you know, went downhill. But it's taking in a lot of information, but you're comparing it to a normative sample. So the problem is is sometimes you can only, you know, base it off of certain demographics like age and gender and ethnicity and education. But it's also important that, that you aren't too specific about what's going on um, because then it becomes really individual and you just don't have enough people that really internalize or I guess better way to say it is, um, you know, kind of express their performance in that way. So the current state is that, you know, we try to incorporate as much about the normative data, including different types of cultural culture and diversity, whether that's age or gender or race, but it's also important to balance it out by making it not too specific, but not too general. So there's there's a huge gap, and it's a work in progress in trying to figure out how to do it, and then also money, um, funding to do all of this testing for normative data. It costs a lot of money to get this assessments and um, test it on a normative population and have a, enough people to make that normative data population. So um, there's 
there's so many different factors besides just not having that normative data or that population to work with. I was actually, this is, I like how you brought that up because I was interesting. I read this uh, article on the Scientific American the other day. I think we're featuring it on our website. It talks about refugees and mental health issues. You know, we had a huge refugee crisis, and, you know, people just flowing in from Syria. And they were talking about how cult, uh, basically refugees kind of internalize this, you know, kind of culture shock and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, have, so have you ever encountered anything like that, you know, doing being a, uh, a PhD candidate in clinical psychology? Yeah, uh, I've worked with actually a lot of different cultures, more so than I thought I would get the opportunity to. Uh, and I've actually worked with clients of South Asian um, ethnicity. So I think the biggest thing I've come across is the language barrier. So a lot of these assessments are based on, you know, the English-speaking language. And translating in it, translating the measure, you, you know, still lose some information or things don't translate one-to-one um, or there are different phrases that express it better. Uh, so sometimes you have an interpreter in the room, but at that point, you know, the interpreter causes some sort of, you know, they could help you, but they can also, you know, not get all the information or not express all the information or accidentally give the client, you know, some information that they're not supposed to. Um, or translated measures, they, again, it just doesn't translate one-on-one, and you can't use, you know, normative data for an English-speaking language on a different language. So I think that's the biggest thing I've come across in in my experiences thus far um, with immigrants and refugees is sometimes there's a huge language barrier. So how do we, you know, assess for everything that we are now with everybody who speaks English? How do we translate that in a way that makes it valid for different populations with different languages? Yeah, it's another really interesting point you brought up because I read a BBC article and I think it was a it was a psychiatrist from King's, King's College London and he said in many South Asian languages there's no word for depression, which I thought was there kind of crazy. But, but a, yeah, there's, you're exactly right. So, so that kind of leads to the, into the second point. Like, so what do you? So you talked about the language barrier. So what else needs to improve in kind of incorporating culture and when you're doing assessments, uh, psychiatric assessment? education. Um, the education is different when you think of a South Asian culture versus education here in the U.S. Uh, they go through a different sequence. They learn different things. Sometimes they learn it in a different language or they learn it in English. But then, you know, being in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley, I see a lot of people coming from South Asian countries coming here for jobs, but they were educated, you know, back home or in their country of origin. And that makes a huge difference because a lot of these you know, tests may assess for, you know, certain things, but it's based on a language that if you learned it here, you would probably know it better um, or a different phrase that you might know better. So it's really important to think about not only, okay, fine, you change the language and you, you make it work for that specific language, but was this person even educated in that? So it's really important that if a person gets a low score on something that you don't just think that it's a weakness or a deficit or a problem, it's really important to think about why that's a problem. So if they get a really low score on something where it's completely English-based and you had to go to an English-speaking school to even know, you wouldn't write up that this is a problem or this is an issue with them and they can't, you know, do this or this or this. It's important to really incorporate that cultural context. Um, Why would this person, you know, have difficulty with this? Okay, so it wasn't a difficulty. They were able to get things that they were actually educated on. So... I think it's important for, you know, individuals, whether you're from a South Asian culture or not, to, 
you know, know that just because there's still a, a growing and a huge learning curve um, with stigma and different cultures and assessments that it shouldn't discourage anybody from getting help. I highly encourage, you know, individuals that are feeling anything that's just off with them to, you know, seek out help and find places where they can feel safe, they can feel comfortable to talk about it, whether that's a friend, whether that's, you know, a family member. Um, I think the second point is is that it doesn't always mean that it's a disorder. It doesn't always mean that um, somebody is better or somebody is lesser than somebody else. It just means that somebody is different or unique. Um, we're all different and unique in our own ways. We all have different strengths and weaknesses. Even if somebody has similar strengths or similar weaknesses, they internalize it and they express it in different ways. So I think being informed about what's going on and something that Manmukti does is to keep people informed. And I think that's really important is to know that there is a resource out there. There are people willing to help and there are people fighting for change and fighting you know, this mental health stigma in so many ways. So I hope that encourages people to get help themselves and to know that whatever we're doing on our part, we're doing the best that we can to help fight the stigma. Thank you so much. I, I think you made the some of the most important points just now about uh, just encouraging people to seek help and not be discouraged by the current state of things because, as you said, they are improving. There's ways for them to improve. So thank you so much again for taking the time to speak with us today, and I hope everyone... I was able to learn a, learn a lot from it. All right. Thank you so much. Hey, guys. If we could take a moment to ask for just a little bit more of your time and love to rate our podcast on iTunes or shoot us a review, we greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. And if you want to continue the conversation, visit our website at manmukti.org or connect with us on social media. We'll see you next time.